on weeknights from 6 on 2FM. Thanks to Jamie for staring us through the afternoon. The two Johnnies might get a bank holiday off, but myself and Marie don't. So it's Monday the 6th of February, St. Bridges Day bank holiday weekend. And coming up on the show, Stephen Ferris will give us his views on Ireland's start to the Six Nations. Alan Cawley will be with us. He reports after his trip to Tottenham Hotford Spurs Stadium to watch Harry Kane and Erling Haaland in action. And we'll have Niall Morning on the hurling and Peter Cavanagh, Peter Canavan even. I hope we don't have Peter Cavanagh. Peter Canavan on the football. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at Game On 2FM. Game On on 2FM. Welcome along. Alan Cawley has appeared in front of me just back from his trip to the Tottenham Hotspur Estate can't say that today. Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. We will be talking about that a little bit later on, but we're going to get straight into the racing, Ruby. You are so excited about the Dublin Racing Festival. Did it live up to all of your hopes, dreams and expectations? It did in many ways, Marie. Um, a lot of the results were kind of strange and not many of the favourites won, but as regards um, atmosphere and crowd and engagement, um, I thought it was spectacular. I thought it was so cool as a racing person to be in Dublin on Saturday night with such a crowd of people in the city for racing. You would see it at matches and different sporting occasions, but to walk around Dublin on Saturday night with so many people who were there for the two days racing, I thought it was unique. And you could see it in the crowds. It was so unusual for an Irish race course. Half an hour before the first race, people thronged around the parade ring. That came with the influx of English English visitors, the amount of English people that came to the Dublin Racing Festival. Uh, the crowd was up 40%, over 34,000 over the two days, and 27% of them were from the UK. It was incredible to see, and it was great to be there and great to be part of it. I saw that video of Rich Ritchie on the bus and everybody chanting his name. It looked like great crack. But you, you're right, it did feel like, from just watching on from at home, one of those big sporting events and people were in the spirit of it. And it's now established itself in the calendar as a go-to destination festival for people. It is, and look, you say figures and people think, oh, only 18,000? That's about all Leperstown can hold, is 18,000. A racing crowd is a moving crowd. It's not people sitting in one seat to watch a match. They move from one side to the other. Whilst it might look a big premises, when you're allowing that amount of people to move all the time, um, it needs to be quite big. And it just, it was a great crowd, it was great atmosphere, and it was brilliant racing. And it was, it was competitive, there was some bizarre results, um, so many favourites got beaten, it was, and it was just, it was really, really good stuff. So how's Willie Mullins after it? Confused. <laughs> He'd pile of winners, but not the ones he thought. And I'd say a bit confused. Um, you know, I'd say disappointed with uh, how appreciated ran, even though delighted with El Fabiolo. And that's the, the emotions you're dealing with with him. Um, and he ran the vast majority of his good horses. And obviously, Gallop and the Champ was brilliant. Stateman was brilliant. Um, and it was so. F- it's not funny, but it was weird almost watching the Chanel Farm Irish Champion Hurdle as 90% of the place inhaled and exhaled and clapped honeysuckle everywhere she went and uh, even the, the the palpable you said we're talking about hurling groan when she made a mistake in the back straight and then almost the disappointment when she didn't win and there was that emotion with the atmosphere there the whole way through the weekend and then Facile Viga blew out in the next race and I'd say punters are starting to think or starting to feel it in their pocket and then Gaelic Warrior went and won and the whole place lifted again but it just was it was it was brilliant that's good um what was going on with Fasal Vega? Because I know you're always talking about how good he is and how um, he seems to do most things right. He just ran away. Right. Simple as that. He went too fast. Um, <laughs> is that on he, with Paul? 
Yeah, Paul was right. And we jumped out in front and or jumped out upsides in front going to the first hurdle and high definition took him on and he just got lit up and started the charge. But Marie, there's only so much control somebody who's 10 stone can have over an animal that's half a ton. And when Vasa Viga decided he wanted to go, he was going and just simply went too fast for the first six furlongs, seven furlongs. The, the speed was, was just way too fast. And um, when you go that hard, you cannot keep going. So uh, what impressed Mentally you? Mentally it got to him, Marie. That's oh, what right. you'd say if it was a player. Okay. Um, yeah, because I did read afterwards, Willie, saying that Paul um, rode the horse like a machine when he should have rode him like a, like a racehorse. Yeah, that's... Yeah, it was probably just an instant reaction. But um, yeah, he just went too hard. But I don't think Paul had much control over it. And that's what happens. But to me, it was the occasion, the crowd, the atmosphere. He It just all got to him. I thought you told me that horses don't always notice these things because they're horses. No, I didn't. They did tell you. I did. No, I definitely do. And it's been like, and whatever about Leperstown, when it was very atmospheric and it was a lot of noise, but you'd see it in Cheltenham, the amount of horses that will get to the start at Cheltenham, that have run the race in the parade ring and on the way to the start. Can you train them for that? No. Experience. Keep like bringing them, them. Get them used to it. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a mixed weekend, Ruby, wasn't it, for Paul and, as you say, Willie, especially with the favourites. And I heard somebody making a comment today on Racing TV that probably going into Cheltenham, I think we're five weeks out from it tomorrow, um, that it's the most open festival that we might have in a long time because normally we do have the hot pots and use to ride many of them, but with a lot of those ones getting beaten over the weekend and others stepping up, is it quite open now going into the festival? Yeah, there's plenty of races open, Alan. Look, look, obviously the Supreme is wide open now after Fasai Vega blowing out. El Fabiolo chucked himself into the picture big time to take on John Bond. There was only a neck between those two horses in the entry last year in the novice hurdle. So, like, there's a big clash. You won't have your colours nailed to the mast on one side or the other. The champion hurdle state man, look, has proven that he's up to beating Honeysuckle. Is he going to get up to Constitution Hills level? I couldn't tell you, Alan. Mm. But the fascinating part there could be that Honeysuckle could drop back into the mayor's hurdle. And in there with Epitant, Love Envoy, Brandy Love, like that could be an incredible race. And it looks, it's, there's so much strength in depth. And I guess the Dublin Racing Festival, someone said to me, someone said the other day that they're trials. They're not trials for anything. Mm. Now, they're pointers as to what might happen in Cheltenham. But all of those races at the Dublin Racing Festival, for the prize money that's attached to them, are all worth winning. They're big races and they stand on their own two feet. And you might have got pointers out of it for Cheltenham, Allen. Um, they most certainly weren't trials. Another thing with Willie Ruby that amazes me, and obviously because of, I suppose, his success over the years and he has three or four races or three or four horses going into each race On obviously he might have a hot pot in one but he still has two or three real live chances as a second or third string but, and it's a funny one really and, and whether you can answer it or not, I don't know but we often say it, we're joking here with Maria herself saying, have you a favourite child? Does he have like a favourite <laughs> horse out of the three or four? And as you said there, he was disappointed that Appreciator gets beat even though El Fabiola who he trains wins and he's probably delighted for them and those owners but does he have a favourite child or a favourite horse when he's going into the race? No, he doesn't. Um, look, there are, he treats, treats them all as individuals and he's a great empathy with horses, Willie Mullins. He sees things that most people don't. Um, but no, I wouldn't say he, he has a favourite child. He, he could look at one and hope that it's going to be the greatest horse he might ever train and he might have higher hopes for one maybe than he does another but is that the same for a manager on a football team or a hurling team mm. is this the guy that's going to be the difference between us winning the All-Ireland or a string of All-Irelands or not and yeah Willie would have expectation of horses I'd say he hopes Gallop and the Champ could go and maybe be 
the best horse since Arkle, and he will have trained him. Of course, he'd love to have that kind of horse. He had Hurricane Fly, he, and he'd, he'd like another one, but I wouldn't think he has one favourite over another. And look, I think a lot of people saw at the weekend that whilst Willie might have trained him, it was every horse for himself at Leperstown. Mm. It was no like team tactics. It's every horse for itself. The all of different owners, the best one's going to win. Best one on the day is going to win. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it anyway, Ruby, because it sounds like you did. Um, now, so Willie Mullins doesn't have a favourite horse. Well, I do have a favourite rugby pundit, and he's on the line now. <laughs> Stephen Ferris, how are you? Not too bad, thank you. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for joining us on this bank holiday weekend. Um, a good weekend, though, for Ireland. And I think probably because there was so much hype heading into this because of the Warren Gatland fixture um, or the, the fact that he had joined uh, Wales, I think nobody really knew what was going to play out when Ireland uh, took on Wales. But it became apparent very quickly, Stephen, that Ireland were going to win that game. Yeah, it certainly did. And it's great to chat to you both on the back of a resigning win. Um, and I think you know all the damage was done in the first half. The boys come out of the traps really strong. Um, and I was sort of expecting it to be the other way around. You know, I thought the, the Warren Gatland returning the, the wheels would have had his guys running through brick walls, but it was just too many mistakes. Um, their skill set wasn't there. Um, too many penalties give Ireland good access into their uh, 22. And when Ireland were in there, they were absolutely ruthless. You know, Keelan Doris, Josh van der Fleer, Johnny Sexton still rolling back the years. Um, and it's really difficult to, like, pick one or two lads that didn't really play that well like everybody was just on it and even when the bench was emptied I thought maybe a, a couple of lads would come on too early but no it's just um, really really good afternoon for, for Irish rugby and um, you know I suppose in the, the rugby world cup year that it is there's a lot of apprehension as well around that with a lot of Irish supporters myself included um, but it's good that we, we seem to be still on that right track it was a big day for some people and I suppose one guy was tipped to be the second coming, to be Paul O'Connell's replacement. It hasn't happened to him for the last 24 months or so, but did James Ryan re-announce himself as maybe that player? Yeah, possibly, Ruby. Um, you know, when, when you're a player and you're maybe not struggling for form, but you want to get into a game really quickly and just that little tip on from Johnny Sexton, the inside ball, um, he gave that four or five yards before Keelan Doris went over for the first try and you know as, as a former player you, you want to make an impact on a game quickly um, and that's exactly what he did the line out ran really well he looks like he's put on a few extra kgs he was you know absolutely huge out there um, and yeah it's brilliant to see him in full flight we all know that he's struggled a little bit some people say oh he's always injured but you know, it's not always an injury we know he's had a few concussion injuries mm -hmm. Um, and you know he seems to be in a, a really rich being a form so I'm delighted for him and uh, delighted for, for, for the lads to get off the, a big win and start and you know seeing Paul O'Connell in the coach's box with a smile on his face um, you know brought a lot of Irish people a lot of joy The IRFU issued an injury update this afternoon Jemison, Gibson, Park Keane Healy and Tyke Furlong are all going to miss Ireland Six Nations clash with France in Dublin on Saturday and you'd have to think if this had maybe happened before the Wales game we'd be a little bit more worried but just given um, how well the likes of Conor Murray and Finlay Bielham did um, at the weekend it feels like these issues are, are surmountable now Yeah it does and you know, that's the most encouraging thing uh, with the Ireland squad over the last couple of years is that when they are faced with you know challenges like that before big games you know Keane Healy dropping out Furlong, Gibson Park, obviously Furlong I think it was earlier on in the week, but 
you know, you, you got to come out and, uh, and face those challenges. And you know, Andy Farrell talks about it every single week about, you know, those challenges are obviously different on a weekly basis. But, you know, team selection is, is always going to bring headaches, but it's going to bring a few more headaches when, um, you know, a few players start dropping hours before the, the ball's kicked off. So um, they'll be preparing all week for, um, you know, those guys that are going to be missing. But I thought Finley Bielan was excellent, absolutely fantastic. He carries the ball really strongly. He's been doing that all season for Conant. He seems to be able to... Um, knuckle down and, and make sure that the scrum was rock solid as well and I thought Conor Murray for most part in the first half didn't really put a foot wrong he was buzzing around the place and it's great to see him um, you know, when he's given an opportunity go out and grab it and you know, he's maybe silenced a lot of critics as well with that first half performance uh, and you know maybe a number of other players as well they were truly excellent Look, there will be things that they have to work on and this game was essentially over at half time but Ireland's penalty count in the second half went through the roof is that just because you're so far in front it becomes a little less competitive or is there a particular reason for it? Um, you know, I think Wales are going to have a, um, a steady you know, 20-minute purple patch at some stage in the match and they put Ireland under pressure. I think the most pleasing thing for Andy Farrell and the rest of the coaches would have been their goal-line defence. Um, you know, look at that the, the the step that Dan Bigger nearly got on ring rows and he just got him around the ankles James Lowe got over and stole the ball um, Andrew Porter held up um, one of the back row fellas for, for wheels right on the line um, on the last play uh, you know it was just all over the place and I think that's something they'll be really proud of is, is how much effort they put into into that scramble defence and, and, and getting the turnovers but when you're under pressure you're, you're going to leak a few penalties and and that's exactly what they did. And I think it's very apparent over the weekend of rugby that referees are being very pernickety with offside, um, you know, hands beyond the ball and the breakdown, you know, people trying to counter rock. And as soon as their hand goes on the, on, on the deck, there's almost stabilise yourself, the referees penalising. Um, you know, I think France gave away 18 or 19 penalties in, in their game, which put them under huge pressure against Italy. So uh, that's something that they'll probably work on and talk about during the week uh, and try and iron out for, for a big weekend. Yeah, they love work-ons anyway, don't they, um, uh, head coaches? So they'll be delighted to at least have um, some things to work on. From your own point of view, Stephen, you must have been delighted with Stuart McCluskey and he was obviously talking to the media because there's a piece with him on the RTE website today and it's hard to believe that he had to wait seven years between his first and second Six Nations appearances. He said he did consider moving abroad uh, during that time, but um, he only he wasn't, really, um, he wasn't really too pushed about going, but it was in his mind. And you can understand why, because it's such a long time to not, be playing for your country do you know what um, Marie I, I was sort of expecting him maybe 18 months ago to leave Ulster and to leave Ireland and, and go and look for a new challenge he's got uh, a young family um, a wife um, and you know sometimes you got to prioritise a lifestyle if it's not going to come your way and for, for a while there it looked like it wasn't and uh, we always said that he just had to wait for an opportunity where the likes of Bundy and um, Henshaw weren't going to be available and Bundy obviously was, was banned for a bit during the autumn um, Big Stuart McCluskey come off injured in, in, in one of the games but bounced back the following week and he's been very very steady for Ulster all season and it also it almost looks like him and you know, Ringrose and, and Sexton they seem to be getting a lot of cohesion and um, I'm sure Robbie Henshaw sitting in the house watching it thinking oh geez, I'm going to have to work very hard to get my spot back when I want to get back fit so 
brilliant for him. I'm absolutely delighted, and I think I speak on behalf of a lot of Ulster and Irish rugby fans that he, he's deserved a shot, um, and now he's finally getting it. And when he's getting it, he's, he's playing well. He's playing, played very, very well at the weekend, and it's good to see Bundy coming off the bench and, and keep adding the pressure because he had a couple of really crucial turnovers. So, you know, good competition for places. We'll, we'll bring out the best in both those guys. But isn't that the beauty of where Irish rugby is? Robbie Henshaw is sitting at home <laughs> thinking, how hard am I going to have to work to get back in that team? And this is an, an incredible place, Stephen, for Irish rugby to be in. Yeah, it is, and you know, obviously my specialised position in the back row, seeing you know Jack Conan on the bench. Um, there's another, you know, three or four lads that I get I get list off. They're playing very very well for for Leinster, and even Nick Timoney, who um, has been brilliant for Ulster over the last couple of seasons, who who aren't getting international rugby, and that's what it's all about. And you know that's what Irish rugby has been trying to do over the last number of seasons is build that strength and depth. And you know, we were sort of um, a little worried maybe four or five weeks ago when we were hearing that Tag Furlong was going to be injured and he might not make the first couple of games and then all of a sudden you know, Finley Bealham really steps up to the plate and against a, a pack that's been going well for the Ospreys um, you know, predominantly a lot of the Osprey players playing for Wales you know, they cope really really well so um, this is what it's all about and you know, squad depth and strength is, is definitely going to be tested when we get into a Rugby World Cup there's going to be injuries and no doubt Ruby there will probably be injuries over the next few weeks, um, maybe this weekend, but it's how you deal with it and, and how you bounce back and, and how you keep on winning and that's something that Ireland are very fortunate and been able to do. I know they've been kind of dealing with that the hype that's starting to build now for for a little while and it's going to become more intense if they keep winning matches now. I mean, Saturday could all just fall flat in its face but you wouldn't think so just given um, the consistency now in this, in this squad. When do you think it's going to become an issue or do you think it's going to become an issue, Stephen? And should they just embrace it, embrace the fact that they're now heading into a World Cup in a few months' time and people are expecting them to do better than they've ever done before? Yeah, well, I think myself, Marie, yourself and Ruby are, are expecting big things from the Sahara side in the Rugby World Cup and, and why not? Like, they're the number one side in the world. They're playing brilliantly every time they take the field. Um, good squad depth as we, as we keep... You know, referencing, um, but it's a, it's a big year. It's a huge year, and you know, Johnny Sexton's. I think it was his post-match comments saying it was probably one of the most nervous he's been before a Test match um, in his career, and you know, maybe that is because there is a realization that it's it's such a huge year. You know, it's it's the first Test match of the of the of the new calendar year, um, and his probably last Test match is is going to be in a in a Rugby World Cup. So. Um, yeah, we, we just got to keep on winning. Um, you talk about it could all fall flat with face this weekend. And, you know, I don't think it's, um, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, you know, the home support that the lads get at the Aviva, they play very, very well there. Um, they're clean enough bill of health where, you know, they've got important players that are going to turn up. Um, but maybe France, that close call against Italy is exactly what they needed. You know, maybe going out and winning by 15 or 20 points and, you know, not having too many troubles, um, that, that could be you know not a good thing for France. So they're going to make sure they're switched on. I know Sean Edwards was really disappointed in um, his side display, especially the amount of penalties that they give away, and they're going to fix a number of things. I wouldn't actually be surprised if there was a, a few changes as well in their squad uh, to the starting 15, so we'll see how that happens. But I'll be there with bells on, supporting the boys uh, on Saturday. Uh, I can't wait for hopefully a big result. Neither can I. It'll be an incredible game. But just going back a little bit, 
Johnny Sexton said he was has never been as nervous before the last game. But is that not the elephant in the room in this whole conversation? How nervous are all of we every time he gets tackled? Is he going to get up? <laughs> yeah, panic stations. Um, yeah, again, a little bit of um, nobody knew, nobody sort of knew what was going on with Johnny Sexton being taken off. And I think I sort of had to access social media to sort of find out. Um, in the in the moments after he went off, he did look like he was limping. But then you know the referee was saying that he didn't look like he was at himself and, and to get off the pitch for an HIA. Reading this week, he's going to, you know, the, the HIA protocols and everything else. And we all know Johnny's history of, of taking small bangs to the head. So we wish him a, a very speedy recovery. But he's the captain of our country. He's the captain that's playing, still playing brilliant rugby. Um, and as I always tell everybody, Ruby, the only reason he's still playing is because I made all the tackles for him. I know Ron Nagar used to say the same about Den- about David Wallace that's all wing forwards ever say take the glory off the out half Stephen Ferris you enjoy the Aviva on Saturday night thanks a minute for taking our call Game On on 2FM Now welcome back it's time to turn our attention to hurling and I'm delighted to say that Niall Moran joins us for another year another season another league campaign how are you Niall? Great for me glad to be back to you there we, uh, it's been a long time since the final but uh yeah, I'm sure it's uh, good to be up for everyone to be back in there after the weekend. It has been a long time since the All-Ireland final and I think that the crowds are reflecting just how much people have been missing all the inter-county action. 19,000 down watching Cork and Limerick. That's phenomenal really for early February, isn't it, Noel? Yeah, it was incredible, incredible buzz down there too. Even, I suppose even to see Park Cueve lit up the way it was. Um, it, it was phenomenal. I suppose a lot of them probably stayed down there. On Saturday night, and I'm sure Wexford Park was the same. Mm-hmm. You couldn't, there wasn't a hotel room to be got. So it just tells you the appetite for it, and look, people love getting out as well. Like. And those that went to Car- Parky Creeve on Saturday night, they were well and truly entertained, Niall Moran. This was a great game of hurling. Super. Finished up a really, really good game of hurling, I suppose. It kind of puts faith to this notion that the, the league doesn't really matter to teams. Uh, I know NC Daly came out about it, he said it had the same value as a two euro coin. No, I'm sure he was just kind of. Mm-hmm. Elaborating, over elaborating, whatever. But if you see Cork coming down the home straight to get three points, that meant an awful lot to them. Um, no different to win the Munster League a couple of weeks ago. I suppose when you're trying to kind of climb your way back up the ladder, you, every every victory matters. And in the same breath, look, Limerick be pleased with a lot of what it went on too. Um, don't be overly disappointed because they know there's a lot more to come. But um, for the Rebels, yeah, the, the, it was very very impressive. A uh, bit of a spine sack to Como and Downey did very well there. And Kieran Joyce probably added to his reputation again. So. Look, they'll be thrilled to win a kind of a tight game too. Like, and look, bear in mind they, they probably hammered Limerick last year, and it didn't probably turn out that way in the championship. But again, you, you can't uh, turn your nose at any victory. One thing that's kind of coming out from it is that um, the that people are saying and pundits are saying that Cork are working a lot harder than they have in the past. And I always wondered about that, Niall, when it comes to a team. Can you can you turn a team, we'll say like Cork, who have been criticised in the past for maybe being a little bit soft, a little bit um, a little bit light on the the work ethic? Can can that change? And are you seeing that change? I think sometimes it's loose criticism as well, Marie. I, I don't mean at intercounty level, like all these teams are working hard. It just maybe sometimes maybe the the unity and how they work um, is probably the the difference between maybe what Limerick are doing. They're probably unbeknownst to people are very coordinated in how they close down space, how they mark the sidelines, uh, whereas other teams mightn't be as proficient and then what they find themselves is they become isolated one-on-one with guys and then it looks as if you're not working hard enough because given the physical nature of players, they're slipping you very quickly. So 
I suppose, look, there was a more coordinated um, work rate in the second half in Cork for the same thing. And, you know what I mean? It's not as simple as saying they came out and they worked a lot harder. I think they just they worked a lot harder together. And, um, look, it, it, it's a huge thing, I suppose. The, the nature of all the games, one of the, the teams of it again was the amount of teams that are just running the ball through the middle. And, like, obviously the middle third is cliche, but the like, middle third is just thrown up bodies. So it's those who are coordinated in probably the defensive element of it and the attacking element of it. They're the teams that look best um, when the game's over, like. I think it's the worst insult you can throw at any sports person because they're not working hard enough. It's a better way of describing it, energy. You look at Liverpool, they look so lacking in energy, whereas United have gotten energy back. Have caught more energy. Energy is a, a huge word, but I suppose one thing... Maybe it's I, not the I, right I, word either now, but there's, is there no, a word to put I'm just talking about tackle count, count, really, like the fact that, um, I don't have the stats at hand, but the, the amount of tackles that Cork made in the first half compared to the second half, they did a huge amount more of it. And for me, tackles are doing a bit more work. You know, to me, work rate is a, is a part of a skill set. Uh, and again, it's not that any guy doesn't like any guy doesn't go out to work hard. They do, but some guys don't have those skills acquired. So, for instance, you might have an underage player who was really, really good, and he was so much better than everybody going up and down. And then what you find is that that skill set has been neglected because it wasn't required up and down. And then that same player gets senior level, and guys will turn around and say, "Well, he doesn't work hard enough." But it's not as simple as saying that it's a mindset and an energy. It's actually a skill set. And what you'll find is guys who probably mightn't be in a strong coming up along uh, don't mean who had to probably rely on the ability to tackle and like they are guys who people say well he's a great work rate because maybe he was deficient in other elements and that was a skill set which he focused on whereas opposed to the good lad his, his skill set might have been shooting like or whatever else like you know that's a good point, actually, yeah. Great point. Different ways of looking at teasing a different argument out. For me, I suppose, looking at, from a, I don't know, from a fan or a purist point of view, I thought it was great to see Keane Lynch coming back on after 57 <laughs> minutes. Grog Hergley went off. I think that Keane Lynch is a bit of a gift, gift of genius myself. Except for the court yeah, fans were just, booing. Yeah. How look, can you boo I, that I, talent? I, 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 number one, anyway, Keane, you know, for the hairstyle, uh, I, I, there's probably some retro helmet going to come out with him there in the next couple of months because if you want to cut it back, or <laughs> the helmet will be of no use to him. But um, yeah, look, I, people said there was crowd or boon. I think maybe, I don't know, was that a Keane or was it a Gerard coming off? And I suppose Gerard began to laugh and that was a pantomime villain at times. He's a big bad wolf, but um, even up to when he came off, he was he was actually superb as well. Girl, he was really, really just so so dominant. And look, I don't think I don't think there's any insult made in that. It, was, it just added to the atmosphere, mm. probably more so than anything else. I had uh, I was chatting to Joanna Reardon earlier on, the columnist with the Irish Times. She's from Cork, and she said it was uh, it was positive being. It was like, oh no, like here he comes, like groaning, as opposed to been disappointed that he oh, was there. there is a massive on. distinction between a boo and a groan now you can hear that in Leperson yesterday they were groaning booing is a completely different noise dress it up whatever way you want now I said it was spin it was definitely spin uh, we, we put it down as kind of panto season the tail end of panto season there or whatever else but uh, no again it was just you know what it was just brilliant to see such an atmosphere and it is, I know again like Cork has probably been down since probably 05 in terms of winning All-Ireland but the game needs Cork like they're they're hugely passionate supporters. It's a great sports county, and like you need them, like you need them in positive um, as a county because they just add to the whole GA scene. And like the danger of when you have a team who have been dominant like Limerick at the moment, it probably takes away from the lustre of what comes in, in, in championship or whatever else. So, like the more that you have these teams coming up to meet Limerick's level, which they are, and and we continue to do, 
it just adds to it. And I suppose look for Pat Ryan signing off the new manager. He's a great record on the rage. Like he will be just thrilled that this is like getting the tight victories. And even again, you can disregard the league and you can disregard the Munster League. But Cork came through a couple of tight games, even in the final against Tipperary. And all those things, they're all money in the bank when when you need to draw it down later on in the year. Like they'll account for something in, in, in some shape or form. Speaking of Tipperary, Anthony Daly mightn't have put most mass on the league, but he was putting plenty of, or giving plenty of credit to the Tipperary revival, resurgence. Yeah, uh, look, again, the nature of it, again, this was Zutleash, Westmead, they struggled badly at the weekend. Um, it's a tough gig for Willie Maher, you know, they, they dubbed it the Battle of Allengarry, but if, if there's a handicap system in horse racing, I, I don't think the handicapper did his job. Um, look, they're two very lopsided teams. The results are vastly different. But again, when you rack up two thirty-two, it's big scoring. And for me, having watched a couple of Fitzgibbon games even during the, the last two weeks, like Gerard O'Connor, the last couple of years has been very good at Fitzgibbon level. Brian Amara, both them here in Newell. Neither of them played last year. They were back in tow this year. So I mean, a lot of younger guys that have committed to the cause. And I suppose look, the big story of the weekend, and probably the biggest story to break the weekend was the victory of Cashel in, in the Harty Cup final. And like even you're talking about big crowds, like there was a massive crowd in Perlis there yesterday to watch Cashel win the first ever Hearts against Perlis. It was a really, probably a low-scoring game, but a really intense, really skillful game. And I suppose that just adds to the buzz around the county. And I suppose as a fellow teacher, I'd like to congratulate Ben Ryan and his management there. It's um, just dreamland for them as well. So I hope they get to enjoy it. And again, in case Tipperary, um, I suppose the perception out there is that they've fallen behind and. We've all been critical of them, but that's probably the green shoots that come along with the seven beans all Ireland. So, you know what I mean? They're a team who might need to be watched. You know what I mean? They've been down for it the last couple of years, and not down, fully down, but I mean, there's been negativity around them. But uh, I'd be just, I'd just wary of them later on in the summer to get a little bit of momentum. What about Waterford and Dublin playing out the draw? Um, Michal Donoghue, Davy Fitz at the helm there, seeing the, their new teams coming out. Would you be wary of any of them? I know it's very early, though. Probably didn't be enough for me to, to pass judgment on it. I suppose this time last year they, they drew again in, in a cracker of a game like that. I suppose the, for both of them, their, their championships really faded into nothing. Um, I suppose Michal Donahue's job is probably a little bit more difficult in the sense that he probably has to find a couple of more guys. I know he went down to Cork, Christopher O'Leary, a, a former Cork player. He um, came across in schools. He was a good player. I know he was part of the team yesterday. Um, a couple of guys unknown to me they're Keane O'Sullivan uh, he looked very very impressive on, on the clips on television last night great pace great athleticism so his job is that he probably has to find them and so Davy's job is probably that he has to reinvigorate um, you know, a, a golden generation of Watford and Ray Turlers but who have yet to really achieve um, a senior level and I suppose for some of them, like just when you see the age profiles there, the Aston Gleasons and that, these guys are all coming on 27, 28, 29. Even when you look at Paul Manny retiring during the week, you know what I mean? Like that, that generation could slip once Davies, um, once Davies kind of tenure passes. So they have to make hay while the sun shines. So look again, in both cases, the style of play, I just, I think there's no other elaboration in terms of running it. I really, really do. And again. If these teams are to be successful and probably beat the Limericks of this world, I, I don't think they can just mimic them and ape them. I think they've come up with something different that's kind of true to their abilities. And the Waterford have a lot of very, very good stick men as well. And sometimes when they're overrunning the ball, I think maybe it comes undone later on in the year. And so even like looking at it, like they had a very they only had eight or nine points and say you will want more than that as you go on in the year. Like. And briefly. Will Derek Ling be a happy man coming back south after Kilkenny beat Antrim? 
He will, of course. Yeah. He will, of course. That's no easy place to get a result. And I suppose, look, again, he's on a different role too. Um, he's trying to find a couple of new guys. I know Billy Drennan was very impressive. He'd been very impressive in 21s last year. Park watch back to centre-back. Supposedly very, very strong there. So I actually think this weekend you're going to see really good games. I think the Kenyan tip, they're, they're coming on this weekend um, in... In Turles, if I'm not mistaken, if um, they're coming on in Turles this weekend, and then Limerick Clare Saturday night, I, I, I think you could have 25,000 people in, in Limerick Saturday night. I think he's the makings of a brilliant game, and I'd say the pubs are going to get a safe twist out of it too, will be. No like, harm in that. Yeah, sounds like great crack. Um, Niall Moran, thank you so much. We will chat to you again next week. Cheers, guys. Game on. Gaelic football. Now it is time to talk Gaelic football and just a few results from earlier on. So there was a cracking Lidl National Football League game in Porky Rin this afternoon between Cork and Dublin. The Dubs came out on top winning by just a point, 4.13 to 3.15. The holders standing up to a second half comeback having led 4.8 to 10 at half time. And then earlier, Meath were held to a draw at home to Galway and it finished nine points apiece in Navan there. Now it is time to turn our attention to men's Gaelic football and Peter Canavan joins us on the line. Peter, we're in week two. Yes, we've made it. We've made it week two, and plenty of good games to, to talk about after a very enjoyable weekend's football. I'm not sure if we're any wiser though when you look at some of the results from last week and the expectations we had heading into this week, and then um, some of the shocks that there was. And I think um, for me, that uh, Donegal performance against Tyrone probably probably trumps of of what I was not expecting. I suppose for many that was the performance from Donegal that people were expecting last week. You know, with all the doom and gloom and Donegal prayer to the Kerry game, and they produced um, a really gutsy and determined display that day, and it was the opposite. Yesterday, I was at the game, Marie, and they they were a pale shadow, and and one week um, from the fight and the heart and the togetherness they had last week, it, it just wasn't evident against Throne. Now, Throne, in fairness, were. Uh, a much improved outfit than the week, you know, the week before as well. They played really sharp football and they varied their game. But um, it's the first time in a number of years that uh, when thrown at Donegal played that the game was over with ten or fifteen minutes to go. So if you're looking at that Donegal performance, and I guess we're taking into account that Michael Murphy has stepped away and there are um, a lot of injuries as well for key personnel. Do you think there's a lack of leadership there in Donegal because it does take time for people to to step into big players' boots? Well, it takes time for, for new players to come in and to adapt to a system of play, but it also takes time for, for management, and I know they're finding their feet, so you can't be too harsh. It's only their, mm-hmm. their second game. So Paddy Carr and Aidan, Paddy Bradley, they're getting to know players. <laughs> I'm not too sure uh, on their, their system of play. that they, they appeared to be very defensive yesterday, even when they had the breeze. And when they were three points down, you know, they, they kept two or three players back as, as sweepers and thrown simply held uh, the ball. They were happy to run down the clock lane against the breeze. So, yeah, players are finding their feet and uh, I'd say management possibly too and, and, and trying to find out which system suits this particular group of players in Donegal. You said that they, they slowed the ball down, Tyrone did, and, and played to the wins. That's playing the elements, that's just tactics. But Brian Doher must have been delighted with the effort of McShane, Canavan and Darren McCurry. I mean, they were they were brilliant on going the other direction for Tyrone. Yeah, well, again, um, Throne played smart, Ruby, in that, um, you know, when Donegal sat 
back, 15 behind the ball at times. You know, Throne didn't kick the ball in, but there were occasions when Throne turned them over and broke fast and the opportunity was there, which they didn't do against Roscommon, and they did kick it in. Um, and Throne got some great scores that way, and especially when you have the likes of McShane. He's big, he's strong, he's a good ball winner. Uh, you'd be foolish not to kick the ball in on occasion. So that was pleasing from a Throne perspective last week. You know, I was critical that you know there was no evidence evidence of a style of play or a pattern to what they were trying to do well it was obvious yesterday so in the space of a week it's remarkable what can be done on the on the training ground but it certainly paid dividends for for Tyrone Peter, you, you were critical of Tyrone and, you know, for a number of reasons. And I always find it fascinating when you have a child playing on a team. Is it difficult to be critical in the public sphere? Maybe it's easier to be <laughs> yeah. more critical. Um, not at all. You have to call a spade a spade. Mm. And uh, when I played poorly, my father soon let me know about it. Um, you know, it's no different whether you have a son on the team or not. And, you know, I know all of those players, a lot of them I would have coached. So, uh, I think they know themselves, you know, and, and and they're disappointed coming off it. So they're probably not too worried about what me or anybody else in the media says about them, um, and and they have to get on with themselves. But certainly, you'd be disappointed when your own team doesn't perform to the way they can. Um, of course, you, you you're disappointed, and if you're speak asked to speak about it, you you have to be honest. And uh, at times, I've given them praise, and at times, I haven't. Well, I would have had the same of my father, and praise is worth not, nothing if they're not going to criticise you when you're wrong. But I left every race course around my father, so when your son comes off the pitch, regardless of whether you're there or not, does he seek your opinion? No. No, he doesn't. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't like to be uh, speaking to Ted after uh, finishing second and the race you're favourite on, Ruby. Um, Funnily enough, Ted was often no, kinder when you finished second than when you actually when you rode a winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, fair enough. Um, no, he, he doesn't really. Uh, there's times he, he seeks advice, and I, I'm certainly I'm a teacher. Uh, I see it too often um, what doting parents can do to the children whilst meaning the very best for them. Um, it, it simply doesn't work out. I think they need their space to develop. And the best way of learning is is not by somebody telling you what you've done wrong or what you've done right, is but by finding out yourself and trying to figure it out yourself. So, um, unlike others, I certainly don't overburden them with information. They don't get a rundown or a crit- critique of every single performance they play in. And no more so back to my own playing days. When you came off the pitch and you knew you didn't play poorly, you don't be in the best of form and you don't react very well to people telling you what was wrong with you today. Uh, you weren't at yourself. Uh, you know that. And um, so certainly not. Uh, yes, there's times you have to, um, but it's rare. And when it is rare, then the chances are they will take in what you have to say um, much better as well. So that's the way I operate. Maybe at times it's right, at times it's not. Well, I don't know what was said in Kerry, but they definitely listened and reacted from the defeat in Donegal to absolutely hammering Monaghan at the weekend. Paddy Clifford came on and scored 1-1. Darren Roach, Darren Roach even 1-2, and it was a good performance from Kerry. It was. They were the only team in, in Division 1 to, to find the net of the eight teams that played, believe it or not. They were the only team to score goals. 
and I suppose it's, it's typical of of Kerry. Um, you think that, uh, and I'm sure when Monaghan seen their line out, and I think Monaghan did try and have a go at it, and by doing that, you can leave yourself open at the back. And if you watch the goals again, um, it was man on man, and um, that's not advisable against Kerry at the uh, in your full back line. And I felt for the, for for the Monaghan defenders. So and you had the likes of Potty Clifford coming off the bench. You don't need to see him when you're two or three points down either. So uh, great sign from Kerry. Jack O'Connor got a response from the defeat in in Donegal, and it augurs well. And again, we spoke about the importance with the condensed season of having uh, a strong squad. Um, it appears he's he's going to have serious competition um, come championship. Yeah, and that's what he wants. Um, Roscommon and Galway, we were wondering how uh, Roscommon would do second week out, but they've backed it up, and that's exactly what Davy Burke's going to be wanting from them. Yeah, it's um, the players have certainly bought into whatever he's um, telling them on the, on the training pitch. They Their subs came on against Throne and, and turned the game, were superb, defending that three times. This time round, uh, I think it was a real dogged, Display um, where they had to show you know heart and character and come from behind to beat Galway. So um, fr- from a Roscommon point of view, a team that many people would have expected to be going down. They're sitting top of the table after two games, and there's every reason that they will finish in the uh, in the top half. But uh, I suppose the big news coming from that is, is the, the Damien Comer injury from from a Galway perspective and. You know he, he's one of the best players in the game. I hope it's not as serious as as first suspected. I didn't hear any news today, but um, if it's as bad as as they expect, then he could well be out for the season, and, and that's a massive blow to Galway. That would be a massive blow for Galway and their neighbours Mayo. Marina Armagh, of course, they said it was a cauldron, but Kevin McStay, he was angry enough with the decision of some of his players late in the game. Decision making under under pressure, Ruby badly let them down. They they had performed really well, played some brilliant football. To to what in the last six or seven minutes they were they were four or five points up, and to throw it away, they coughed up possession two or three times when they didn't need to. Uh, they had a brilliant chance to either hold possession or to get a, a score that would have won them the game at the end. I think it was Owen McLaughlin ended up uh, having a rash attempted goal. So. It's it's an old feeling of Mayo, and it, it's you know not being ruthless in in front of goal, and I have no doubt it's it's something that that Kevin McStay is going to have to work on. He'll be so happy with various aspects of their performance because it's not an easy place to go, as as you've alluded to, and uh, a few calls may have went against them, um, you know towards the end of the game, but. You've got to admire the way Armagh went about their business there, never say day attitude. And the very fact, Ruby, first Sunday in February, the place was packed, jammed, and they're vocal, they get behind their team. And so that's, you know, that's an, a, a big endorsement of what Kieran McGinney is, is doing with that squad of players and how far they've come in a couple of years. Yeah, the crowd itself just shows how, how far they come and, and what McGinney's been able to do up there. But if you look how strong they finished and the way they were able to stop that Mayo momentum, why couldn't they do that for 70 minutes, Peter? Mm, good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what that's what he'll be trying to get out of them. But they took risks, Marie, in that last five minutes. If you notice one of the kickouts from Mayo, Ethan Rafferty, uh, their goalkeeper, caught the ball in front of Ian O'Shea. 
So if he attempted to do that halfway through the game, you know, that would be madness. Um, so they they pushed up. They were really aggressive, and you know Mayo very nearly did catch them if they had a used possession much better towards the end of that chance with with, with McLaughlin. So it's it's high risk, whereby you're pushing up and having to go for it, uh, and you only do that you know with time running out when you're a few points down. So it it certainly paid off for them. But you know it's it's a great sign that their fitness levels in the last ten minutes. In fairness to both teams, I thought there was a great pace to the game it didn't dip and uh, to be so early in the season it, it was a brilliant game of football Well Peter they are the four league one games and unfortunately it's such a busy Monday that's all we have time for but they were thoroughly entertaining and thanks you for, thank you for taking our call this evening we have a quick break to take before we're back with Alan Colley on the soccer Game on on 2FM Alan Colley is with us in studio. Alan, you had the pleasure of being over watching Spurs and Man City. Was that yesterday? It was yesterday. Was yesterday, Marie, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it's hard to keep track. I did have the pleasure, yeah. Absolutely brilliant day, brilliant experience. And we couldn't have picked a better day, I suppose, Marie, for a number of reasons. The main one is the fact that it was such a huge game for both clubs, but mainly for Man City, I suppose, off the back of Arsenal losing on Saturday. So there was a lot of pressure on them to try and follow up and close the gap. And then, of course, there was all the talk and the narrative around Harry Kane and was this going to be the day that he was going to break the record if Spurs were to maybe get a victory. And that's exactly what transpired, Marie. He scored, Spurs won, Man City lost, and it was absolutely brilliant the thing though Al that I want to know about your trip is when you're sitting that close and I saw from your pictures you're only three or four seats back from the side of the pitch so Mm. you're up close you're watching those players like the best players in the world warming up um, they're coming over towards you for the throws the free kicks all the actions right there in front of you like what are the modern footballers like yeah, and that's something, Marie, when I go to a... Like, there was a time I used to go to matches and you're going as a fan and obviously you're, you were young with the blinkers on and roaring and shouting and whatever and you want to see your team win. When I'm going to games now, it's a whole different kind of outlook I have because regardless of the teams that you're going to watch you're going to watch players and individuals and systems and formations and as you say how to warm up and how to go about things and I love that level of detail and insight into it and as you say when you're so close literally up so close and personal to the likes of those I was even interested in the warm up beforehand and you look at them and how they're getting ready for a game a top level game like that Uh, Grealish's finishing in the warm up was absolutely incredible but the one thing that struck me Jack Grealish and he probably blew me away the most Marie was the physical condition that he was in and this is something that I noticed last year when I was over there as well uh, with the Man United players the physical conditioning now is and I go back to my day when I was there 20 years ago and to be fair lads were in good nick then but you look at them now and it's not even they're so strong they're so fit they're so powerful but it's not powerful in a way that they're just big strong bulky yeah. lads they're powerful in a way where they're fast runners they're mobile they're dynamic they get round the pitch they're really lean it's just incredible the the, the level of fitness that they that's have that's what I'm curious about Al because like you were you were close you were in Leeds like you were there like you were you were really close mm. and you saw a Premier League team you were in or, in among them and now we're 20 years on how different is it like are, are, is it is it night and day yeah yeah it actually is Maria people might find that a bit bizarre um, 
the fact that there's you, you would look at 20 years and think is it that is it that long of a period of time for things to evolve so quickly but they have like the strength and conditioning the sports science behind clubs now that's why you see a team of people if you go back to when Man City won the league and people are waiting on the trophy presentation there's about 40 staff members come out onto the pitch before <laughs> the players come out and they're all playing a part in terms of the level of detail and, and the analysis that goes into things as you say dietitians, nutritionists mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff everything is monitored everything is watched and and you can see that then reflected in what you're watching on the pitch when you see them that close the physical condition of them is frightening still the level of ability might be the same as what it might have been 20 years ago uh, in terms of the technical side you still would have great players playing back then but I just look at them now and, and as I say They're the conditioning athletes. yeah all athletes every one of them and that was the thing with Spurs yesterday you look at the running power of the likes of Hoiberg who might not be the best on the ball but he covered every blade of grass on the pitch yesterday Kulisevsky and Son who were two players who people would see as um, maybe tricky wingers of, of, a, of a bygone era when they lose the ball they're back defending helping Royale and the left side was Perisic but see when they win the ball and the way Spurs play they break and they're literally running 67 yards up the Pritchmery and this is ongoing throughout the day this isn't one or two little breakaways this is ongoing for the 90 minutes that you're up and down and up and down brilliant to watch brilliant to be so close but the one as I say that blew me away was Jack Grealish he was absolutely brilliant and because of maybe the price tag and he gets a bit of stick as well but I think he's finding his feet with City now in terms of the way they play and it took him a bit of adjusting to get to that but there was a brilliant running battle with him and Emerson Royale and Emerson Royale was actually brilliant probably the best mm. game he played for Spurs but Grealish gave him such tr- trouble such problems and I'm looking at him thinking he glides across the ground I, I mentioned the physical condition that he's in and you can't push him off the ball Marie. that's why he's fouled so much they can't push him off he's so physically strong so it was great to see him in the flesh it was the first time I'd seen him he was brilliant So City have all these people 40 of them in the back room millions and millions spent <laughs> Pep Guardiola sitting on the bench yeah, how come they didn't win? And we find out today that they might be breaking rules and everything oh. Ruby so yeah it's um I just looked at it and obviously from my point of view Ruby the narrative was the whole Haaland thing and this, this debate has broken out are they a better team with him and without him I, of course they're a better team with him in terms of the goals but they just play a completely different way of what he's used to and that's the where I think it's breaking down at the moment because what he was very used to was something that was real direct with, with Borussia Dortmund to get it forward quick he'd be playing on the shoulder and there'd be balls played into space and he'd be running onto them finishing them it's the complete opposite with Man City because they keep the ball so well they literally pass you to death so he's making all the movements and all the runs as he would normally make but they're not firing the ball into him or trying to play him into space they're trying to literally play over back uh, do all the stuff that they do in terms of the amount of passing and they're just trying to find gaps on the edge of the box when teams are hemmed in so I just think there's an adjustment period going on with them at the moment uh, between Haaland and between City they're still brilliant but I think a lot of the credit must go to Spurs yesterday because everything that was thrown at them and the one thing where I always think Spurs are weak is defensively with the likes of Dyer and maybe Ben Davis at times but himself Ben Davis, Dyer and Romero in particular were absolutely fantastic yesterday and Romero I know he's a bit of a loose cannon but he's some player he's absolutely brilliant and he's almost an old school South American defender that he wants to fight Grealish he was getting in his face <laughs> fighting with him roaring at him it was brilliant to watch but I think this, the credit has to go to Spurs yesterday I thought they were brilliant well, The credit goes to Spurs yesterday I went to Everton on Saturday Sean Dyche what a start for him Brilliant start Ruby um, and I'm not surprised by this because Sean Dyche I mentioned it here Friday that 
season campaigner, all the experience in the world, very level-headed, very measured in his um, media press conferences as well, before matches, after matches. And he's literally just gone in there, probably put his arm around a few, put a structure in place, um, demand standards as well. That's one thing when you hear interviews with Sean Dyche that we're probably lacking maybe under Lampard because you look at the way they played on Saturday in terms of their approach and the intensity and the energy that they played, getting in Arsenal's face, all the things that you would kind of associate with a Sean Dyche team. But I think what's different at the moment and what will be different going forward with Everton under Sean Dyche, he has a better calibre of player now than what he had at Burnley. And I think he can get even more out of these players to push them up the table. So all the doubts I had with Everton under Lampard about getting relegated, I don't see that happening now under Dyche. But then go back to the other side of the first conversation we had. Coaches, physios, mm. psychologists, etc., etc. And you basically break it down to Sean Dyche walking in and putting his arm around him and convincing they can do it. Well, there's a there's a whole load of kind of ways I suppose you can in, you can implement your psychology in terms of roaring a shout in the fellas if you want to put their arm around them whatever the case may be especially nowadays I think the day of roaring a shout in the fellas is long gone and he is very aware of that and he's very um, clued into the modern way as well I would think and he also Ruby is no problem in. Um, I suppose getting people on board that are specialists in that field and allocating them to those positions that will deal with players on a one-to-one situation apart from the football side of things so I just think he has every box ticked Sean Dyche because of the experience that he's built up where I think Lampard was lacking in that area because he doesn't have the experience built up and you look at the performance that they put in on Saturday Everton I think they'll all buy into what he offers them and what he's going to give them and um, it's great to see him back because I always admire Sean Dyche I hate the narrative around him that he's only a long ball merchant because when you're managing Burnley sometimes you just have to Cut, cut. I suppose the 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 claw to how you measure in terms of the resources that you have available to you, and that's what he always did. Now, as I say, with Everton, things might change because he he has a better caliber of player. But the first thing he has to do over anything is keep them in the division. Cut the claw to measure. I'll remember that the next time we're talking international <laughs> soccer. Um, but what about Casemiro? Surely Ten Hag's going to be roaring out in him. Yeah, he would have been fuming with him, Rue, because I watched the game Saturday, and again, a good performance, cruising in the game the game really petering out at that stage and they're 2-0 up and he gets himself involved because of Anthony again messing in the corner and I hate to see that stuff uh, with him kind of almost annoying players and antagonising players and that's exactly what happens with especially with English lads or Irish lads what we've been brought up with if there's a Brazilian dancing in front of you you want to kick him and that's kind of what happened and Casemiro's going in to defend his friend and all the experience he has in the world I know people are saying it was harsh and it was soft, but you can't stick your neck, your hands around somebody's neck and expect to get away with it. So he's going to miss three games and I'm sure Ten Hag is fuming. I'm sure he is fuming. Jurgen Klopp's fuming as well. But the good news is we don't really have time to talk about Liverpool. <laughs> we need to talk about Jesse Marsh. So a little while ago, he was sacked as Leeds head coach. Seven games without a Premier League victory. And Alan, that's a club that you um, have played for... What, where are they going to go from here and how much damage has Jesse March done? I think a lot of the decision that was made today, not only off the back of the results because they were really bad, but I think a lot of the reasoning around the decision was the fact that Everton acted and I don't think Leeds want to get caught out in the sense that they got the bounce Everton from the likes of Sean Dyche coming in. They're just afraid, Leeds, if that carries on the run of results, that they don't have the time then to fix it. So they've acted off the back of that to try and get a bounce off a new manager. It'll be interesting to see who to go for Marie in that sense because I always felt he was struggling, Jesse Marsh. And you look at the run of results, three points out of the last 21. They had a gap in between that were the one-two games, but the previous 10 was something similar. And there was a night here we were previewing one of the 
of games and they were getting ready to play Liverpool and I was saying to you he'll be sacked if they lose Saturday night and we all expected them to lose he'll be sacked they went out and beat Liverpool at Anfield now that may be a lot of that is down to maybe how bad Liverpool have been uh, rather than Leeds being great but they've fallen back into their old woes even off the back of those two wins and the last seven games three points out of 21 I'm not surprised one bit he never really he never really filled me with any kind of um, you look at the, the press conferences after the matches as well and wishy-washy stuff and that just didn't wash with the Leeds fans and, and, and I suppose he got the sack today yeah, new uh, new era to come. Okay, Alan Cawley, thank you so much for coming into studio after your trip yesterday and giving us a lowdown on uh, what Spurs look like up close and personal and also Manchester City, Ruby. Uh, thank you for being here as well and we'll be back tomorrow, both of us. Cheers, Marie. Uh, Betty De Silva's up next. RTE 2FM.